Are you an avid uh, Wheel of Fortune watcher, any of you? A lot of you, all right. I'm not, but I'm, I'm pretty familiar with, with the game show. I, I know how it works. Uh, and there was a story uh, back in uh, November of 2019. Remember no, November of 2019? We'd never even heard of COVID. <laughs> you remember those days? November of 2019, though, uh, there was a, 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 a contestant that made the news on Wheel of Fortune. Her name was Kristen, uh, and uh, Kristen was, it was one of those puzzles where, uh, you know, they used to always be a phrase, and then somewhere along the line, they added some of these crossword puzzles, where it was a little more crossword-themed, and there's usually uh, a, a word that sort of unifies all of the various words that are in this crossword. And so the word, the clue, was field. And then they, you know, like they always do, they go around and they spin the wheel, and if they, if they land on a dollar amount, they get to choose a letter. And so they were back and forth choosing letters. And when it got to be Kristen's turn after a few rounds of that, it became really obvious to her what the answer to the puzzle was. Remember, the, the clue was field. The words were left, like left field, right, right field, football, football field, and Sally. You familiar with Sally Field? Some of you younger people are like, who's Sally Field? <laughs> right? So that was the puzzle. And she knew it. She had it. And so she said, right, football, left, Sally. Only she didn't say exactly that. She said, right, football, left, and Sally. She snuck an and in there. That's against the rules. You can't add any extra words. And so Pat Sajak felt really badly, but he said, I'm, I'm so sorry, but you know, you, you, gotta, you added an extra word in there. We can't give it to you. And there was this furor on the internet, all over social media. How dare, come on, give her the prize, you know? I mean, honestly, when I first read the story, I thought, yeah, that's a dumb rule, isn't it? I don't like that. That doesn't feel good. But the more I read about it, you know, the, the producers of the game show said, you know, it, listen, you may not like the rule, but the rule is very clear. And it's very explicitly spelled out for all of the, the contestants. Before they step onto the set, we sit them down. We go really thoroughly over all of the rules of the game. Uh, furthermore, Pat Sajak, often when, it's, when they're on set and they're in the thick of it, He'll often remind them of this rule, as he did that night. He said, now, say all the words, don't add anything. She goofed, she added and, and she lost out on, I forget how much or what the prize was, but there was some trip that she, she had an opportunity to get and somebody else got it. Oh. And it was interesting, because I, like so many people, thought, well, come on, just let her have it, you know? Just give it to her. And then I thought, well, it is the rule, though. You know, where does that stop to just sort of break or bend the rule? I want you to open up your Bibles this morning to Joshua again. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 today. And Joshua, the book, you know, we've sort of been studying the, the person of Joshua, and we've gone back into uh, the, the earliest mentions of Joshua to, to get some background on him. But the book of Joshua, really sort of in the, in the early part of the book, outlines primarily the conquest of the land of Canaan. 
Remember, God has promised them this place. They call it the promised land because it's just that. It's the land that God had promised them. There were other people living there. And so when they finally arrived there, after some sin and disobedience and wandering around in the desert, they finally arrived there. God has delivered them into this land miraculously across the Jordan River by holding up the river at flood stage so that they could cross on dry ground. They're here now. Uh, Last week, we looked at the, the, their first military encounter in the promised land, which is the city of Jericho, a big, powerful, heavily fortified city, prepared to withstand a siege for a very long time. And God miraculously makes the walls just sort of lay down, right? He gives them these instructions. They, so the Israelites now are kind of on cloud nine. You know, they've seen a couple of things. And, and that previous generation saw the plagues. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea. And still they, they got really disobedient and they lost faith and they lost their hope in God. But now this new generation seems to be on the right track. They have also seen this miraculous water crossing. They have now seen this miraculous deliverance of a powerful city into their hands. So here we go, right? And that's where they are. Now, I want to remind you that God had told them when they went into Jericho, this is all devoted for destruction. There are some metals that are to be collected and put into the treasury of the tabernacle. But by and large, this whole city, and we talked a bit about this. This sounds harsh, I understand. But he almost says, this is a sacrifice to me, is really what the the wording there is. It's devoted to me. It's devoted to destruction. That is what they were to do. But we say in uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. It's interesting to me that right from the outset, it says that the people of Israel broke faith even though it was really kind of just this one guy, right? But because of this one guy, Achan, the whole nation now falls under God's wrath. But now we just get a narrative of of what happens. And it's interesting that that God, in in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to give us this. There's a part of me that thinks that from a storytelling perspective, it would have been fun if we left this nugget out and didn't get to it until later maybe. But God's wiser than I am, and so I'm going to go with his version. (laughs) You know, we're told this up front, and then we get this narrative. Verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Aven, east of Bethel, and and, and stop right there for just a second. This is about 15 miles away from Jericho, 15 miles west by northwest, okay? So this is the next seemingly big city. Uh, and, and I've explained before that this is not like a unified nation that they're up against. It's a bunch of peoples who, who live, by and large, in city-states. So you have these kind of regional kings of a city-state in its surrounding areas, and Ai was the next one of those. And so here they go. 
And Joshua said, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and they said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. <laughs> they go and they look at Ai, having just come off of this you know, battle in Jericho, which, again, I remind you, the text doesn't really say much about any particular battle. <laughs> what it says is the walls fell down. People just walked in. Uh, at, but the battle itself is, you know, the Bible's kind of silent on that. But they've done that. And now they go to spy out this next city, this next kind of city-state. And they say, you know what? This one's not Jericho. There are not many people there. We don't need to send our whole force. Remember, the whole force is in the neighborhood of 600,000 fighters. And these spies say, send 2,000, send 3,000. You know, it's fine. It's easy. We got this. And so, here they go. Verse 3 says, uh, oh, excuse me, verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Again, there's no, you know, some of you may be like me, you know, you want a little bit more detail, uh, like a, a historical recreation of where the battle lines were and how this, the Bible doesn't, it just says the 3,000 men went up, and the men of Ai chased them right? They just chased them away. Worse yet, next verse tells us the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. Now, 36 maybe doesn't sound like a lot out of 3,000, but you know they weren't really supposed to lose anyone, right? And all 36 of these men had perhaps wives and mothers and fathers and sisters and aunts and uncles and kids, you know, this is not a small thing. And they chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, Shebarim, excuse me, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You remember when Rahab received the, the spies into her house and she hid them and protected them? It was one of the things that Rahab told the spies, she said, listen, the, the people of this land, this is what they're like. Their hearts have melted. They're like water. They're quivering in fear, you know. Well, now it's the people of Israel who have taken on this, this fear. In verse 6, Joshua tore his clothes. We've talked about this before, but this is a, a sign in the Middle East of, of great sorrow, of great mourning. You know, men in particular would... would grab the, the collar of their, their outer garment and just tear it, you know. And he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, another symbol of, of great mourning and of sorrow. And Joshua, verse 7, said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? 
For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua, if I'm, I'm being honest on first read, sounds a little complainy, right? <laughs> he sounds maybe a little bit like that previous generation of Israelites said, oh, I wish we would have stayed in Egypt. Now, it doesn't go quite that far, you know. He says, maybe we should have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. We talked about this before. There were two and a half tribes that, in fact, did do that. They said, we like it here. Can we stay here? And Moses said, yeah, you can stay here. You know, you got to come fight with your brothers first, but yeah, you can come back here. And now Joshua says, maybe we should have all just stayed there. Kind of forgetting that it was never really up to them, you know, where to settle. God has directed all this. But I want to cut Joshua some slack here. He's confused. Don't you understand his confusion? Don't you want, because what we've been told in verse 1, Joshua doesn't know yet. And he's flabbergasted. They've They've just seen these amazing, miraculous events happen. They've been in them. They didn't just see them from afar. They they were right there. They participated in these incredible things. The crossing of the Jordan River. The the battle of Jericho. There has been so much. They just... And now this happens. And Joshua is just dumbfounded. Why? God, I don't understand. And he even has this, this heart not only for himself and for their people, but for God's own reputation. And he says, what, what's going to happen to your name? You know, I don't get it, right? Verse 10 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Again, God told them what the rules were, what the expectations were. He told them this in the last chapter. You want to look back at uh, chapter 6. I'll start in verse 17. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, verse 18, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And so here, God explains, this is what has happened. And again, the language is interesting. Can I just ask you a question? Does God know who took the stuff at this point? 
Yeah, right? It's interesting to me that he doesn't tell Joshua, though. What he says is, Israel sinned. See, he uses this same language. He says, trouble has visited Israel because someone sinned. Someone took these things. I very explicitly told you. And Joshua very explicitly told the people on God's behalf. All of this is for destruction. You may feel good about it or you may not. It's immaterial. That's what we're doing. And if you take some of these things, you're going to cause trouble for this whole nation. And God now explains to Joshua, this is what's going on. This is what has happened. And I promise you, I will not be with you until we take care of this issue. Get up, verse 13. Get up. Consecrate the people. We talked about that word before. Consecrate, right? Prepare. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. If you are Achan, and I know your first thought is, I would never, right? Just pretend. If you are Achan, what sort of night's sleep do you get that night? I mean, can you imagine? There's a part of me, as this plays out, that wants to say, Achan, why didn't you just come forward? I mean, come on, how did you think this was going to play out? Are you really hoping that God will goof? Because what he says is, you're going to draw lots. You know, we think of this as uh, drawing straws, maybe. You know, where you draw the short straw. You know that saying we have? Or you drew the short end of the stick, perhaps. It seems weird to us. I mean, because we think of that as something random. We think of that as something akin to rolling a dice. You know, it's just completely random. But God had instructed them a long time before that this was one of the means by which he was going to communicate with them. They had this understanding. This isn't just random, you know. We're not just rolling a dice. What's happening is God is using this mechanism to, to point us in the direction, to, to give us the answer to the question that we've got here. And so he tells him this is what's going to happen. And Achan has to go to sleep that night, wondering about this next day. And, I don't know, maybe hoping that somebody still won't figure it out. Maybe in his folly, he's even thinking, I'll bet somebody else stole something. You know? I really didn't even take all that much. I'll, I'll, bet, there's, I'll bet there's somebody else. That, that took a bunch 
You know, somebody has to have like a wheelbarrow's worth of stuff. It's probably that. Huh. Verse 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning. He brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerahites, man by man. And Zabdi was taken. Zabdi would have been the head of a whole household now. Again, how does Achan feel now? It's getting closer and closer and closer. And then uh, he brought near his household, that is Zabdi, brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Gulp. Does Achan just want to throw up now? I mean, come on. Doesn't he? It's hard stuff. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. And he absolutely, utterly comes clean. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, and they brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, and Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And then they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Many of you have a, a footnote that points out that Achor means trouble, Valley of Trouble. There's this moment when Achan comes clean and he confesses entirely. I have a confession to make to you. I really want leniency for Achan. Do any of you? I mean, it seems like here he's, he's finally he's done the right thing. He admitted it. He, he calls a spade a spade. 
He says, I, I did, I saw this stuff. I wanted it. I coveted it. I took it. I've hidden it. You're right. I have, and he even uses the phrase, I sinned against the Lord. And I'm not going to lie, there's this part of me that wants to do this thing. Okay, thank you for your honesty. You know, like when you, you, you have a, maybe a class of kids or a group of kids, and you say, listen, I, if, you, if you just come clean, you won't get in trouble. I just really want to know who took the backpack or, you know. But I think when I do that, I think when we do that, I think we've done something really critically dangerous. Which is, we've made sin a small thing. We've pretended sin is inconsequential. And this scene, the way that it actually plays out, as graphic as it is, as tragic as it is, as gruesome as it is let's just be honest this was not a pretty scene i like to think that no one enjoyed participating in it but i think when we say let's just let him go i think what we've done is we've said well sin isn't all that serious right Sin's not that big a deal. And I think this can take one of two forms. Either we sort of collectively say, sin in general, our sin, it's it's really not that big a deal. We do that sometimes. Or sometimes we do something that is similar, not the same, but just as dangerous. And we say, well, my sin." Isn't that because there are other people that, that have sinned worse, right? And so, yeah, some sin is really bad, but mine isn't all that bad. And I think part of the reason this is here is to remind us remember, all scripture is God breathed and given to you and I by inspiration for our benefit, for our teaching, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. And while not all the Bible is per se to us, it is absolutely all for us. Hallelujah. And I don't think this is a passage that's just for ancient Israel. I think it's a passage that is for us today to remind us of the seriousness of sin. Now, we do not enjoy talking about this. We don't love it. It's not popular. It is not in vogue. <laughs> and there may be some of you that's like, yeah, yeah, preach it. We need to preach about sin more often. Well, I, I'm careful. You might fall into that second category at times where what you really want to hear is me preach about other people's sin. Wait. <laughs> right? This isn't popular stuff. And especially for a a church that preaches this word, and among other things, preaches and holds high grace. You know, we've seen it today. We've sung about it today. 
just minutes ago. And we say, let's just be gracious. Let's just, you know, ignore this. And I think we need this reminder of how serious sin is. Our sin, your sin. If you want to turn with me to 1 John. And I know a lot of you are such good Bible students. As soon as I say 1 John, you're like, oh, I know where he's going. That's good. Good for you. We're going to go there anyway. <laughs> 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You know what's a slightly different way to say that? If we say we have no sin, we are liars. You know what's maybe even a more specific way to say that? If you, fill in your name, say that you have no sin, you are a liar. You're wrong. What we do with that becomes real important, though. Now, I am not going to suggest that you do anything to deal with your sin. Because again, you can do nothing to deal with your sin. Who dealt with your sin? The Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He dealt with your sin. But that doesn't mean that you sin no more. And it doesn't mean that sin loses its seriousness. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have consequences. Which is why John writes this. And just to remind you, John is writing this to brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's, he's writing this to fellow believers. He's not writing this to, you know, worldly sinners. He's writing this to us. He says, if you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar. But praise be to God, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Sin is serious. Sin is serious. It's terrible. It's ugly. Randy reminded us this morning of some of the specific ugliness of sin. But see, if we're not careful, we say, thank goodness I'm not involved in that sin. I'm just involved in lying, you know. Yeah, I slander people with my mouth. Sometimes I slander people in my heart, in my thoughts. But it's not murder. Maybe I'm disobedient. Maybe I've got issues. Maybe I'm not living in my marriage the way God has instructed me as a parent or as a child the way God instructed me. But it's not adultery, you know. 
we sort of make these clever little hierarchies of sin. We say that maybe I'm dealing with some sin, but you know, it doesn't carry with it the ugliness of some of that stuff that Randy talked about just a few minutes ago. And at the end of the day, I'm really kind of okay. No, you're not. When you think that way, you're a liar. When you and I miss the seriousness of sin, this is uncomfortable to talk about. We don't like this. But the reality is, we see in this account from Joshua the ugliness of, the penalty of, the way God thinks of sin. And I want to remind you that our God is perfectly and utterly holy. It would be good if our notion of sin began to more match His notion of sin. You're familiar with clean rooms? Clean rooms that are used uh, sometimes in the manufacture of uh, medicines or of uh, uh, electronic components, computer components that you know even a speck of dust throws everything all off. Of these clean rooms. And they are utterly perfectly, I mean that's the goal. They don't say, well if we can just get it mostly clean, I mean, it's okay if there's some dust in there. Well, I mean, by definition, that's not a clean room anymore, right? I mean, God in His holiness is utterly pure, utterly clean and righteous. And every there's not like some sin that bothers Him and some sin that kind of doesn't, that it's just okay. It's all offensive to Him. It's all an affront It is all a pollution to his perfect holiness. This is why sin needs to be dealt with. This is the problem that we all have. That we're all born into. Much as we like to admit that, or we don't. Now, praise be to God again. He knows better than you do. You can't deal with your sin. Jesus did that. By the law, by the blood of of bulls and goats and sheep, by those things no one was ever saved. By Jesus we are saved. Hallelujah. God says, I am going to judicially declare you innocent of that sin. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message. But part of the gospel message is, always, is, is also that you and I are called continually back to a place of repentance. This is what John is getting at here in 1 John. To say, now don't just think, all right, I, I got my sins forgiven. Now, woo, I'm good. I don't need to worry about that stuff much anymore. Yeah, you do. Yes, you do. And the moment you let that dangerous thought, whether it's that we collectively that our sin isn't that big a deal because Jesus paid for it or maybe that you don't have to worry about yours because it's a lot less bad and less ugly than somebody else's when we let those things creep in we are not thinking about sin the way God thinks about sin which is in an extremely black and white way and when we have it it is ugly You may not think that it rises to the level of ugliness of the things that that Randy talked about. 
But that's just because you're not God. To him, it does. To him, it's an affront. It's a problem. It's a pollution. And, and again, even having been judiciously declared clean, we can have this relational problem where we say, well, now we can take kind of a wink at sin, and it's less bad than other people's sin. And it's not all that serious. And God says, yes, it is. You need to come to me and repent. You need to come to me and confess that. And when you do that, I will make you clean again. But you do need to address it. It is serious. It is ugly. It's terrible. And when we say, well, it's not that bad. Let's just sort of sweep this one under the rug. We are not thinking about sin the way God thinks about sin. You have a gracious God. Hallelujah. You have a loving God. Hallelujah. You have a God that saved and rescued you because of His great and profound love for you. Hallelujah. That's not the same as saying that sin now has lost its seriousness in your life. It hasn't. It may just be a small thing. And you have told yourself, well, it ain't murder. It ain't adultery. There are way worse things. So, you know. I want you to be wakened up this morning by God's Word that says sin is serious. It's a serious thing. Now, if you're with us, we say this so often, if you're with us, whether here in our room or, or with us online, and you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's the first place I want to go. Because even judicially, you still sit under the penalty of your own sin, of your own ugliness. And it's like John says, even to fellow believers, don't say you don't have any. Yes, you do. And if you are sitting under the penalty of your own, which is right and correct, you're the criminal in this picture, I want to remind you, someone else stepped in and took your place because he loves you. Isn't that a good story? I've shared before, I shared the gospel with somebody young in the context of a, a high school camp. And he said, that seems too good to be true. Yeah, I know. It is. It does seem too good to be true, doesn't it? But that's our God. He loved you that much. He stepped in and took your place for your sin and took your penalty so that you could be made alive. That's good news. And all the Bible calls you to do, all the gospel message calls you to do is to put your trust and faith in Him. To say, yeah, I do have this sin problem. I, I got to recognize that. But God, I also recognize you took care of that for me. You took that penalty for me, and I want to trust Jesus and only Jesus to make me whole. If you have already done that, and I know as best as I can know, the vast majority of you here with us have, praise God. But I want to remind you today, the gospel still calls you to a place of repentance to a place of confession, to a place of recognizing your sin remains serious. 
And while it has been paid for, you need to come back to God repeatedly and confess for your sin. Because when you don't, you're doing something ugly in your life. You're doing something ugly in your relationship with your God. It's not right. It's not pure. It's not the way your God, your Father, intended it to be. Because we say, that's not that serious, is it? It is. It is. No matter how small or minor you think the sin is, to a perfect and holy God, it's serious. It is. Don't say you have no sin. You're a liar if you say that. But praise be to God when you confess it, when you recognize its seriousness and confess it to your Heavenly Father, every single time He is faithful and He's just and He will forgive those sins and restore your relationship. Restore your relationships with each other. Restore your relationship with your world. Purify your heart and your mind. Don't we have a good God? Oh, we have a good God. Then in the face of this terribly ugly problem called sin, that God continues to act in love and in grace and in faithfulness. I love our God. Don't you? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And this is another one of these passages, God, where if we're honest, it's not maybe terribly comfortable for us to deal with. This isn't a fun passage to read. Maybe we want a little leniency, because after all, he ended up in the end confessing. But God, it's likely that when I think that way, it comes from a place of really kind of wanting leniency for me. I want my sin to be no big deal. My disobedience, my little dalliances that are nowhere as bad as other people's. But God, while this hurts, I thank you for the reminder that to you, sin is serious. And that we are called repeatedly back to a place of repentance and of confession. That we recognize the gravity of the seriousness of sin. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ dealt with it once and for all with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We praise you for that. We continue to proclaim that and celebrate that. And Father, as we often do, we do pray for any that might be with us that haven't put their personal trust in Jesus and his work to be made whole. But even after that, God, we're told by your perfect and holy word that if we say we don't have any more sin, we're wrong. It's not true. We do. And we need to understand its seriousness, its gravity, and to repent. Oftentimes, multiple times throughout the day, continue to come back to you. And we praise you and thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins every single time. Thank you, God, 
We pray for your conviction. We pray that you would shape us, mold us, and at times chip off those edges that need chipping off as we get sculpted into something that looks more like you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.